Hello and welcome to Mouthwash TBD's podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD and founder of Emerging Technology Advisory here forth. My guest today goes from the biological to the ethereal. Nick Childs is obsessed with stories and co-founded a consumer insights research platform that uses neuroscientific principles called DIRT to study what goes on in your brain when you're on Snapchat or watching the latest film at Sundance. No stranger to either himself, Nick creates as much as he nerds out. Relentlessly curious, Nick is a fascinating chap and knows good experiences. But where's it all going post-pandemic? I asked Nick that and he gave answers you might not expect. Enjoy the show. Nick is a curious gent. He's made everything from Super Bowl spots to award-winning movies. Along the way, he got interested in digital, which led him to the world of experiential content. Fast forward to his work being showcased at places like Sundance, Tribeca, New York Film Festival, and South by Southwest. He fully admits to chasing what's next, which led him to co-found Dirt, a consumer insights research platform. Director, writer, and producer, and now data nerd, Nick is leading the conversation on the connection between data and creativity. There's a lot more I could say about Nick, but we'll get into that uh, moving forward. Nick, welcome to Mouthwash. You're in the first cohort. How did today treat you? <laughs> that was an excellent introduction. I was just thinking about mouthwash, Paul, and I was like, actually, this fits for me. I'm kind of like the mouthwash, which makes you hopefully feel good, but doesn't quite do as much as so many of your other guests. Your other guests are like the dental floss and the toothpaste that actually is worth listening to and, and, and works. And I'm just like the little, uh, maybe I'll just try to be the little breath of fresh air with mouthwash. But hey, why not? Why not? Um, right. Uh, this should be fun. <laughs> I think Nick's had a lot of weed mix today. Um, mouthwash isn't just me chatting with Nick. I do want to hear your questions. So do yourself a favor and use the hashtag mouthwash show. Uh, and I'll do my best to get those in. And um, if we don't, don't worry, Nick will probably go through them at the end as well and answer you directly. He's just that nice. Um, right, Nick, I th you've, you've listened before. You know what's coming. Um, start with what the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning is. Oh, wow. Uh, I want to be totally uh, nothing earth shaking. I think I realized I had to go into New York City and drop something off. And so my riveting first thought was trying to figure out how to plan that and how nightmarish the traffic would be because New York is getting back to business and people are driving around wonderfully and starting to do all the dumb things we don't really need to do in any given day. But, um, but the roads are crowded, which is actually a really good thing. So that oh, was my first thought. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we heard all the doom and gloom stories of people moving out, and we've had the same in London. You know, there are there, ha there are a lot of people who have moved out. Yeah, but it yeah. feels like New York seems to be. You know, they'll, it's, they'll it's quiet. Back. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's like London. Um, and Joe's joined, and he's outside of London. But I don't know if it's like it over there. It it still feels like the city is. Um, a bit empty, but it definitely has the vibe of being this big, wonderful present that you can go in and open up. Like it's, you can see it's going to come back very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I'm interested in that with London. I feel like there are a lot of wary people still on the streets, and that says a lot about our media and what we're reading and that sort of stuff. But when mm -hmm. I'm on the fourth floor of a co-working space that I am working called Fora, uh, I look out on Liverpool Street and Shoreditch and that sort of thing, and the offices, to say they are dead, it is an understatement. Yeah. I can see the dust layers piling up and that sort of thing. So, but I think that's, you know, it's whatever companies are comfortable with, isn't it? You know, when mm -hmm. they're going back, if they're going back, is it hybrid and that sort of stuff? But yeah. 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 All right. We're not talking about hip hybrid. That's later on the week. Um, tell me how the last 12 months have been for you. 
fascinating and wonderful. Um, I feel very privileged and lucky. Uh, one of my co-founders, Ryan Anthony, invited me in more than a year ago now, but it was certainly in the in the few months leading up to the pandemic to uh, hop on this new train of um, biometric neuroscientific research that that we've spun up, and it's been. I guess when you're in a happy mood like this, it becomes a cliche, but it's been the ride of my life. Um, it's just been wonderful. I'm hoping that I bring to bear all of the things I've learned over the years um, in storytelling and filmmaking and producing and marketing to bear in a totally new space where I'm learning every day. And that's just been fascinating. And I'm heartened by the optimism over the last 12 months of speaking to people and seeing um, maybe it's something that I just want to believe, maybe more than it is truly real, but I get the feeling that people have reset their lives and the habits that they had formed around work and life and expectations were forcibly changed a bit. And mm. after a long pause, sunk home to the point at which people can now, and certainly the friends I talk to, can have an outlook where they're anticipating a different future than they were 12 months ago and possibly in, in challenging ways, but certainly in ways that makes them reset where, and hopefully optimistically reset where they actually want to go and to do mm. it on their own terms a bit more. And that certainly helped with me uh, in the last year is doing things a bit more on my own terms and, and not feeling that all of the expectations have to be met in life. Mm. I certainly hope so. I, I, that's, that's the hope. And all the data I sort of read is sort of, on a spectrum of um, terrifying for a lot of people. Mm. I think, you know, I keep seeing yeah. big, uh, big tech saying the future is hybrid and then be like, but totally come back to the office now. And we're like, well, wait, you guys are telling us the future. Anyway, we're not, we're not mm -hmm. talking about that, but um, mm -hmm. tell me mm -hmm. a bit of, I've, I messed your bio together from a lot of stuff. Um, and I think that says a lot about you, that you're curious to do a lot of things. We'll talk about that in a sec, but in, in 30 seconds or less, tell me about young Nick. What was he like? Um, Young Nick, very, very young Nick, like to, okay, here's here's one that I don't tell a lot of people, like to put on his mom's high, knee-high boots and long gloves and walk around as a, as a wannabe three, four, five-year-old fashionista. So young Nick in the early days, probably through early middle grades, loved design and fashion design and clothing and things like that. And then older Nick grew to be like six and a half feet tall. And a lot of clothes and things didn't fit me as much. And so <laughs> I, I backed away from that passion and moved into, I loved writing and kind of the idea of filmmaking from an early age. So I'd say those pursuits pushed me forward along the path that I ended up doing. It, that is not the answer that I thought you were going to do. So I'm <laughs> see, more, see more. this is going to be juicy stuff. I, I knew it would be different. I didn't think we'd be talking about drag in the first five minutes, but okay. There you go. Um, you don't like one thing for long, I think it's fair to say. How, how did you get so curious? Um, I think a combination of being, the negative side of it would be being unfocused. Um, I try to reinvent a narrative for myself that um, goes along the line of curiosity. There's a great book by a guy named David Epstein called Range that was out last year and is out in paperback now in the States. And it, it really looks at the idea that those who have curiosity and passion and chase, I'll call it whims, but it has more focus than that, chase what interests them, end up 
if they're lucky about it later in life and after a longer term than the maybe immediate reward, putting those pieces together in interesting ways. And that's what I'm most fascinated by is putting pieces together in unique and novel ways, not trying to reinvent things whole cloth, but to say, oh, this is interesting. What if we did that instead and, and mashing things up? That's, that's where it's led me. Mm. Interesting. All right, let's talk about DIRT. Um, I didn't know until recently, but it stands for something, doesn't it? It does. It does. You want to hear? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, DIRT is uh, an acronym for Discover and Illuminate Real Truths. Um, the, the idea of DIRT and digging in the DIRT speaks to our hope to work with people and clients at a kind of fundamental ground level, playing in a sandbox more and getting into their real challenges and becoming more of a partner um, than a vendor of theirs, which is something that always bothered me in the advertising side was it, it, it felt like it was such a transactional experience so often with clients. And, and I mean that as a, somebody who was in the creative end of it saying, I really wanted to know guess what were the business challenges, right? And what really moved the business and what really made a difference and to back way out of briefs into deeper strategy. And I found as I got involved more deeply in kind of the larger level holding company advertising world, that wasn't a place that a lot of creatives naturally played. Um, leaning on the insights, leaning on the strategy, leaning on the why and the data and the research has always been core of what I wanted to chase artistically. So that was a that was a natural path for me was to kind of try to do that exact word, discover those words, discover and illuminate real truths. Mm. Um, when we talked before, I think I'm right in saying that you align um, stakeholders uh, where to go next, which mm -hmm. I think is an important thing, you know, involved. So whether it's a show or a content, um, talk to us in layman's terms. Um, not everyone's as technologically savvy as yourself when you come to this. What does DIRT do and how, oh. more importantly, how does it do it? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so I'll give you the, the, the jargony thing first and then simplify it. At DIRT, we are a tech-enabled insights company, and we use what are called neuroscientific brain principles to measure emotion, emotion of people, to help creators, clients, people who make things, make their work connect more powerfully with those audiences. Um, right now, the reason we made DIRT is because those clients usually have a lot of ways to measure consumer behavior, but we come in and try to be invaluable to them by identifying what's actually driving those behaviors on a biological and neuroscientific level. Um, now, the straightforward way of saying that, the, the okay, wait, what, so what? Um, the idea of it basically is we bring people into a lab right now, we put sensors on them and we measure their response, how they actually are responding through their brain physiologically to any kind of content that we can put in front of them from like mobile games to platform games to UX and UI of different platforms to ads, movie trailers, anything you wanna put in front of them we can scrape out the data of how they're reacting to it and turn that into actionable insights um, and make those insights to the, to the question you'd said to tee up about aligning stakeholders. We can make um, those insights clear and understandable to everybody who's hearing them 
and then put that into the hands of the creators themselves, the clients, the designers, the researchers, the strategists, the leaderships and, and C-suite teams in a way that makes sense to them. And they can look at whatever they're making and align around making it work better for the people that they are going to release it to. Mm. So you've inferred there that you kind of work with film companies. Would that be right? Who else? Do we know any names? Are you allowed to give any away? I can't give specific names, mostly in the NDA for gaming space right now. Primarily, we've started working with some of the biggest mobile gaming companies in the world, some gaming companies. We're working with a fascinating um, mental health uh, science company who's at the forefront of using uh, VR and AR to kind of change the landscape of mental health. Um, that's a really interesting project. And we're talking a couple of big um, clients and big platforms right now that are built around uh, kind of social media and engagement of their users from the UX and UI perspective. Mm. Um, right. So thinking about what you do um, at Dirt, is it really just about figuring out the old adage, which 50% isn't working or is it deeper than that? Um, I think all of it is always trying to figure out how to make things work better. So if you're at 50%, make it 51. Um, I love David Hyatt, um, runs a company called Hyatt Jeans down on the corner of Wales, somewhat nearer to you than me, at least. And he has this idea of making things 1% better every day. And I like that idea of not trying to bite off too much. So I think it's always about making things slightly better. We're coming in and and not trying to displace the traditional research that um, most people are doing right now in A-B testing, survey testing, all of that's valuable. There are reasons that people do it. I think what we do in neuroscientific research using these biometric tools is incredibly additive to that equation. It's kind of a, so if you're doing that and you're and you're deeply invested in hearing from participants what they think is going on and what's resonating with them, wouldn't you also want to test what their brain is telling you is absolutely going on inside of them at the same moment? So I, I think at least it's a great um, balance to the seesaw that most clients are on where they're very heavily or 100% weighted on the other end of asking people how they feel. We can actually come in and measure how people feel. Mm. All right, uh, ethics time. Um, you're helping people sell more stuff, right? Yeah. Okay, do you have a policy about working with good brands? Are you sleeping at night okay? I'm sleeping at night fine. One, because quite um, openly we're small right now and the, the picking and choosing is we haven't had a challenge of um, a client who we were um, debating whether or not to take. Um, I also think that speaks to the fact that we haven't gone after any of those clients. It will, there will come a time, um, and our co-founder, our real, our CEO, our real founder, Ryan Anthony, who's listening now, comes from a place. If he did this um, previously at another company and and opened up Dirt with the specific goal of not taking those clients, um, mm -hmm. I think for me. The challenge will be when those clients aren't necessarily telling you all of the intent of what they're using it for. Um, and that's going to be in spaces like uh, way down the line in working with governments, working with military. That's where I think we have to be particularly careful of when this can, quote unquote, get in the wrong hands. Um, we are 
absolutely in the business of whatever you make, we are trying to help it connect better with audiences. So when you follow that logic, whether it's a pair of sneakers on a site like StockX that you want to make people like more, absolutely, we're in the business of selling things. I think we're all, the co-founders are all as excited by, if not more excited by, how we can use what we're doing to start tackling issues like implicit bias in policing mm. and um, other uh, challenges in healthcare, challenges in ed tech, challenges in politics, challenges in spaces where we think there's a huge amount of possibility for this kind of research. Um, but yeah, we'll have to be eyes wide open on the danger of um, using it incorrectly. I think that's important, isn't it? Transparency is one of the things that is the, is the theme really um, that have come through from the the interviews that I've done so far for season mm. one, uh, mm -hmm. certainly one of the big themes. Um, I think it's interesting when it comes to content and uh, agencies, because like you say, you don't always know where it's sort of going or what it's going to be used for, but also you can give an insight to someone that can then be used for something else. So again, it, it becomes this, um, is behavioral economics the, the bane of all existence on the earth and that sort of stuff. And I asked <laughs> Rory Sutherland yeah. that. <laughs> I heard that, yeah. Uh, he said yes, and the cure, and that sort of thing. It sounds like with the with the with the, um, the the slight cackle that you agree with that. Um, I guess you know talking about the creative process is an interesting one with you guys as well because you're about part audience feedback, you know what they're telling you and what their brainwaves are telling you and what their skin's telling you. Um, but when you're mixing with a creative process, people, it must be a bit dicey. Um, some creatives totally precious about their finger wiggles art. Uh, others, you know, are less so. Um, and I've been told uh, I've never met a create, precious creative person, obviously, hands up. But um, are you a sort of professional feather rustler or do you sort of see a way to just make their work better? Um, part of the aligning stakeholders has been fascinating because there's been a lot of concerns, especially if we're brought in, let's say, from a consumer insights team or a strategy team of, OK, well, when we are going to bring in the creative side of the the organization, let's make sure that they don't react to your insights in a way that is going to put them off, basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, we haven't seen it happen. We, we just haven't seen it happen yet. And I think the reason it's not happening is there's a huge difference between um, when you're authentically and transparently, a great word, coming in as kind of emperor who's giving a thumbs up and thumbs down, right? You, you've you've made it. Let's pick it. Let's you've made a trailer and you've got two trailers uh, for a movie that's coming out or a TV show, and you're going to show it to a focus group, and the focus group is going to say good, bad, in that kind of Roman emperor thumbs up, thumbs down. It dies at the mouths of the lions, or it goes forward, right? We're not doing that. We're showing um, intentfully where all of the, th whatever we put in front of them, we do a, a trace of the emotional um, connection that the audience has uh, to that. And that trace shows peaks and valleys of attention. And inarguably, what we're showing them is where people were focusing their attention at that given moment so that they can extrapolate out themselves how to dial up and dial down the overall narrative or whatever they're trying to put in front of the audience. So it tends to, has seemed to, knock on wood, will continue to be something that is um, very, very useful, especially at earlier stages in helping people form which of the ideas they have should be doubled down on or should be let go. And that's what we've seen so far, Paul, is people tend to 
use the feedback and the research to help them align around where they should go next in a very positive way, rather than looking at it like, well, these are the babies you've just demanded that I kill, and you're telling me I'm not allowed to do that. It's much more research, which has been fascinating to me from a creative side, that comes to bear immediately and apparently for people going like, oh, well, yeah, it would be totally illogical to chase that rabbit over these other ones over here. Mm. Are we getting to a stage with, I'm sort of jumping around, but are we getting yeah. to a stage with content where it becomes just formulaic and sort of dopamine-y and, you know, are we, are we just edging towards the centre where, you know, if people want to shock someone, it's like, yep, you've got to kill a child, go, you know, and that sort of thing. Like, where, where are we going with this data? Oh, I love it. I love it. You're, you're starting to talk stories. I, you know, this may not be the exact, answer to the latter question of where are we going with the data, I think we're certainly getting dangerously immediate feedback loops on what audiences want in the moment. And I think that leads to, if you think it's stupid and hate it, a lot of reality TV that looks like shows that if you don't like it are ridiculous, right? Or it leads to a preponderance of, um, you know, thriller horror films if one has performed better recently. And I think from the data side, it gets dangerously extrapolated out quickly to things like, you know, chat rooms are the future for Clubhouse. And I think audiences, my gut is, no research on this, but recently, especially during the pandemic, because people are around and bored and looking for you know, a certain class of people and, you know, people who are lucky enough to not be terrified all the time, right, or working all mm -hmm. the time still in tough jobs, are sitting around bored and are jumping on bandwagons of things really, really fast. And I think the data that that's giving us as creators, as storytellers, as makers is, oh, my God, we should be doing that thing really quickly. Oh, my God, we should be making the next crypto coin without yeah. really or NFTs are the next things for 10 years. I'm, I, I get in real trouble with this because I'm not saying they're not. Right. Yeah. But I'm not saying they are. And I think we're losing the nuance for the binary arguments of, you know, a clubhouse and Twitter spaces are the future. And I, I think that that's the danger when we take the put stories and quotes of um, audience engagement is it feels like a really tricky time right now to trust the audience's movement on the macro scale. Absolutely. I mean, if there's anything that's going to shock you to the core, it could be a massive disease pandemic type thing, couldn't it? Right. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a lot of research coming out. We're like, we thought this, but now it's completely different. And we're like, well, yeah, because people are terrified, you know, so of course they're going to protect themselves. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting press releases coming into my inbox at the moment where I literally am just deciding, do I ever want to hear from this person again? Because they've thought to send that to me. So <laughs> it's definitely an interesting one. But I do love people relying on data. You know, that is, I think, an interesting one. Um, speaking of which, actually, before I jump into storytelling, I feel like there's a sensor for every body part we've got now, uh, and we've got swallowable robots coming to diagnose internal issues. <laughs> Don't say that. Nobody will get vaccinated if you say we're swallowing robots, Paul. No, it's already happening. It's already <laughs> happening. They're 3D printed and they're 4D activated. So when it touches water, things change in shape and that sort of thing. But they're really good. They're really cool. Um, Happy, happy to help. It's all on the Concentrate newsletter. Um, so tech-wise, what's next for for, um, for Dirt? I, I smell a lot of Apple Watch straps in your future. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, without giving things away, that 
that really bad cliche um, in innovation and marketing of uh, revolutionizing and changing everything. Um, the space that we are working in, which our chief science officer comes from decade plus of working in it. And as I said, our CEO and uh, chief operating officer did this for a big uh, mobile ad platform. Um, the space that that was in to do the kind of work we did uh, just very generally used to take four or five months of time. It would take a month of planning what you were going to put in front of audiences, a few weeks to gather, a month and a half to plan that, um, a few weeks to gather the data by bringing people into labs slowly. And this is pre-pandemic where it got trickier to bring people into a lab and, and put mm. these devices on them. And then a couple of months of analyzing the, con the what you got back before you could deliver that report to your clients. Already, even in the pandemic, we have a partnership with a team that can spin up that lab-based testing faster. And we've condensed that time from, I would say, you know, an extreme long end of it from four months to as fast as we could do it now, it's probably about a month. And that still seems like a long time. But when you think that we've cut down the possibility of uh, or ramped up the speed 4x in that in in the middle of a pandemic that's pretty good and then the next stage for us at dirt is building a solution that doesn't need any of that and can um totally break the back on how that data is being collected at the moment and can return feedback to clients within days not months so that's that's the real other prong of what dirt will do i think there'll always be this deeper more consultative larger scale study longer term connection with the client for that kind of more focused lab-based work. But then we'll also have a solution that's much easier to turn on for small to mid to um, things that you need to get back faster. Yeah, I, 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 that just makes more money, doesn't it, really, when you think of it like that? <laughs> it, um, does, it does. Look, and, and I don't mean to be like, oh, I'm being disingenuous here, but I, I do come in from the how is this valuable to creative side. And I think when you're talking about being able to put things in front of audiences and get immediate feedback, honestly, the longest term view of this, that's what fascinates me most. The way I put it, probably really stupidly makes sense in my mind, and I don't know if this connects with others, but... If you're a writer and you've been using a thing like a thesaurus or a spell checker or anything to gather your ideas, if you took that away, your work wouldn't be as good. You don't have to show the audience that if you're a fiction writer, you're using those tools, but you use those tools. I want to create a platform. We want to create a platform with Dirt where we can offer that kind of um, research and data and toolkit to creators of all shapes and sizes so that they can use it fundamentally day to day and not feel like it's impacting their art. It's just a tool that's helping them deliver their work better. I mean, that, yeah. like that's, that's the honest goal. Um, but yeah, it'd be disingenuous to not say that, yeah, when that becomes something that a lot of people can use, there's good financial implications to it too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, hey, we're all capitalists at heart to a certain degree, I think. Um, <laughs> right, okay, bigger story uh, and theme in your career is storytelling. Um, talk mm. to me about um, using finger wiggles again, modern storytelling. Um, where are we and what are the new rules? Oh, the new rules are use everything at your disposal to get your story out there while not forgetting, and this is a huge caveat, while not forgetting that you need to deliver the story to the audience. Um, mm. I'm fascinated by uh, the idea that is film dead? Are movie theaters dead? Oh, no. we'll come on to that. We'll come on to okay. that. Okay, we'll go to that mm. later. But so the idea that um, 
just being able to look at new ways to engage people. Um, that's the kind of artist I've always aspired to be and the kind of air quotes on this one, storytellers. And I do the air quotes because it's really dangerous to be in marketing or advertising at all and call yourself a storyteller because most of the time you're just making ads, right? But um, but I do think that in even in marketing and advertising, I'm, I'm less interested by the idea of just doing something the way it's always been done. I like the learning that comes out of this is what audiences have, have traditionally liked and gravitate towards, but how can we use new platforms to change it up and do something new? Like that's just the kind of thinker and artist I am is, is if you made a movie before, do you want to make the exact same movie again for the exact yeah. same length for the exact same audience? Not much. It's not as interesting to me. And that doesn't mean you're not going to make a movie, but I would always come in and say, well, even if we're making a movie or delivering a TV show, how are we engaging with the audience or a Broadway play? Um, I'm fascinated by the insight of like, you've got to, like Broadway fascinates me, right? Because you have a very expensive ticket of a, a couple hundred bucks and you get an audience who wants to come to the theater, pays a couple of hundred bucks for a seat. And if you have a good show, they stand up on their feet and with laughter or tears or smiles, whatever, they applaud your work. Other than selling them the ticket beforehand, you don't talk to them. And then mm. after they walked out of the theater, you don't talk to them. But you have this moment of two hours of emotion and this journey you're taking them on, but you're doing nothing wrapped around it. So for years now, I've been fascinated in how do we connect audiences around the idea of the thing beyond the thing itself? Yeah, I, f I feel the same way. And that's why when I did um, TBD, I made sure that there was stuff that went between TBD. Otherwise, you don't get to speak mm. to them for a year or, or, or at the best, you'll send them a thrilling newsletter, which they're all dying to read, you know, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, no, I 100% agree. It, it's, it, you know, a relationship is what you have between it. But I think that it's a different relationship between, you know, you and your mum or you and your sister or you and your friend, <laughs> you know, but brands are constantly trying to be my friend. And I'm like, hey, your toothpaste, like, I don't care. Yeah. But it, yeah. I would love to have and this is we'll talk about about technology later. I want a block button where I'm like, never talk to me again, you're a functional product. And remind me when I can take some money off for being a good boy and keeping buying you, you know, and that's sort of thing. that's mm -hmm. all I need from them. But we'll talk about that for later. Um, <laughs> A phrase you used in a space once stuck with me. We're looking for new ways to tell the story over telling the story. Do you think that's a good thing? Or do you think that we need to, you know, go back to our roots and be like, no, no, it's all about the guts. It's all about the guts. Um, what do you mean by it's all about the guts? So um, we had Nils Leonard on um, yeah. uh, early on and that sort of stuff. And he's, he's, he is one of those creatives where my eyes do not roll in the back of my head when he talks. No, right? awesome. I get what he's yeah. talking. It's not just because he's a bit sweary and I like that. It's because he talks passionately and I can get it rather than somebody who's talking passionately about something because that's the stereotype of what they're doing, you know, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I, there, mm -hmm. there are some genuine creatives who go, here is my body of work, you know, and it's not about winning awards. It's just like necessarily here's, here's the body of work. And then there are some creatives who like like you say earlier believe that they're making art where you go like it's an mm -hmm. ad for a remote that nobody uses you know so um yeah for me i'm sort of interested in you know not just the ways of telling stories but actually telling the story how does yeah. that sort of you know move on during after the pandemic i you know i think it well, I was, it's, it's tricky for me because I was deeply involved in things like experiential narrative storytelling with things like Sleep No More and um, 
uh, bum bum train and these crazy experiences that people would come to kind of theater settings and go through. So the pandemic actually sidetracked the growth of that a bit. So I think that will come back again. But, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that living on the innovative edge or the bleeding edge of things, you have to be really careful because most people aren't with you. And that's not a knock on most people. It's that if you're, and, and I've experienced this deeply in some of the work that I've done um, artistically at festivals in this area, people, you have to be really careful if you're creating something that isn't a film and you're releasing it at a film festival, even if you release it in the innovation, experiential, future of storytelling, division of that festival, people are still coming to the festival to watch movies, right? They're, you got to understand that a very small portion of your audience is probably going to want to go on that ride with you. And, you know, you'll get the the early movers who want to go on that ride deeply, but you have to make sure that the story still connects. And your question's a great one because it's what I was thinking about earlier. And I th think it also ties back to Nils. I get the feeling with Nils, and I'm such a fan of his work and Uncommon's work, that they're they're actually thinking about what they're delivering. They're not just telling you about the thing that they're delivering and how great yeah. it is. They're, they're actually putting something in front of you that if you didn't know it was from Uncommon, you would think is pretty great. And I think that's mm -hmm. where we get into tricky waters is designing a project to work on a platform is a problem. Designing a story to be told and then thinking about how it might work on that platform is a really cool and elegant solution. Um, very quickly, one of the projects we had most recently, we've reinvented it for an online experience and it'll be running again in June um, called Where There's Smoke. Uh, and it's usually all over my my Twitter feed when we're we're going to run one on the weekends. But we did that originally at Tribeca, and I had a very wonderful friend and filmmaker who's made a lot of big movies came to it, and it was amazing. It was wonderful to have him come and experience this this crazy hybrid of an art show meets a documentary meets an audio exploration through AR and VR meets the story of grief and cancer and death of um, a, a friend of mine who built the experience, his father, and there's all this crazy mashup stuff. And this director came out of the experience and he said, oh my God, that was amazing. Could you go grab a cup of coffee with me? I want to do this show that I'm making for this big network. I want to think about reinventing it. And I just gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it into an experiential thing. And I was like, that's a cool idea, but it wasn't originally built to be an experiential thing. And it doesn't mean you can't right. get there, but if it was designed to be a television series, it's a lot different than being an experiential thing. And, you know, so I think that idea that you can just, oh, this new technology is popular. Therefore, let's take that other thing we were doing and suddenly um, turn it into something for that platform, or even at best add in that platform. That's where things get really tricky because you're trying to add in technology rather than use technology to enhance the story. Mm. I think it's interesting. We've got some new sort of toys to play with, haven't we, when it comes to storytelling like AR, VR. Um, yeah. VR seems to be stalling. You know, if you look at all the numbers during a pandemic, they can't seem to get them off the shelves, bizarrely, um, even with stimulus checks and that sort of stuff. Um, why do you think that is? Sorry, I missed that last question. Somebody had called me and I got kicked out for a sec. Ah, sorry. Uh, so uh, we've got new toys um, mm -hmm. to, to help us with storytelling, VR, AR, and that sort of stuff. Um, the numbers just say that VR is stalling at the moment. Even with a pandemic, you can't seem to sell them. Why, why yeah. do you think that is? Uh, there's a, my, my 
bad personal research on this, but I have seen a lot of VR projects, experienced a lot of them. I don't have VR myself in the home. Um, I think it has great promise on paper. Um, we've mm. been in a lot of at Sundance, at Tribeca, at New York Film Festival, where they tend to put us is literally called the VR section. Um, we don't do that kind of thing at all, but they they tend to bucket us in there. So I've seen a lot of these projects. And I think one of the things about VR is is pretty thin stories get added into it. And the insight seems to be years ago, oh, pick a game, um, pick a film. What if while you're in the middle of this film, you could turn around and see the world behind you? Right. Nobody wants to, nobody's ever thought what's the world behind you because I've actually spent a hundred years devising film that is a pointed focal point of view where the camera points exactly to where I want you to pay attention to the story. The theory yeah. behind it of choose your own adventure, go down your own narrative, feels wonderfully good for live events. It feels incredible for training in things like hospitals. It's amazing in open world games. I think things like that, it's fascinating. I think it hasn't taken on quite honestly because you got to strap something to your head and walk around with it. And that's, that's just a weird anti-human behavior. Um, so I think there's a bunch of stuff contributing why VR specifically hasn't taken off. I think we're gonna see AR in various forms um, explode. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be part of just uh, what are they called? The Apple tags, you know, once you can, and we did this on a recent project a couple of years ago, we took over a five-story museum in New York, a museum mile and built an interactive um, experiential off-Broadway play where 20 people at a time could walk at night through this kind of dark haunted mansion with um, lanterns that were powered by raspberry Pi, um, kind of computer chips and mm. they created a state machine in the whole building and the state machine is basically a computer that knows where you are at any given moment and each person was delivered through their audio a specific story to them alone in this space and they could walk around because we had placed beacons throughout the five-story um, mansion and depending on where they were those beacons would get engaged and trigger a certain story for them and it would be this kind of um, choose your own adventure and I think what Apple's doing, the idea of beacons, the idea of using spaces to tell narratives, that's gonna absolutely explode um, because the, the devices we have in our pockets now, the phones, um, the earphones, the headsets have caught up to being able to do that pretty seamlessly. And then for a certain kind of storyteller that just opens up phenomenal new worlds of what you can do. Mm. It's interesting you didn't mention glasses there. You said headset, but not glasses, which are very different in my book. <laughs> you ready you for think it? AR is going to change everything, or is we, it going to be something else? We did it with um, it was a it was a thing for a moment in time. Um, but Bose AR were actually sunglasses with the AR was the audio piece of it. So that's what we use. So technically, <laughs> they were glasses, but they were just sunglasses. I think I don't know. I don't know. I'm so I, this is one of the ones where I th you throw it out to the audience. You go like, what What do you think? I think really goofy looking glasses we wear all the time just to get a little bit of feedback are not too valuable compared to the mobile phone you have in your hand all the time, right? It's mm. pretty easy for me to take that phone out and let that phone be the lens on the specific world I'm aiming it at, as opposed to me having to wear glasses 100% of the time and it's giving me data on everything I'm looking at. Like that, that to me just seems like sensory overload. Um, I suppose... I suppose it'll get there someday in specific instances. I'm not as interested in wearing glasses for the feedback as I am about the way 
those Apple ID tags, for instance, could deliver information to your phone that you have in your hand. And the second you walk into a theater or a store, um, instead of running around to find the thing you're looking for, it can direct you right, right to it. And then when you're there, unlock a million different things. Sorry to go off on a tangent, but it reminds me of when the Kings of Leon released an NFT for their mm. new album, when NFTs were blowing up and they were like, and with this NFT, you'll always be able to unlock a ticket to any future Kings of Leon concert you want to go to in VIP treatment. I'm like, well, once we've got Apple tags in your phone, we can do that for your phone too. And suddenly you don't need any of that NFT crap. You can just deliver that individual scavenger hunt type experience to anybody anywhere. And that's really, really cool to me. Oh, that, that's such a positive spin on what AirTags actually are for the Amazon <laughs> one. I love that. I, I'm, I'm trying they for are optimism. literally going to be beating your door down to be a spokesperson. <laughs> it's funny because I wrote um, on the weekend uh, for What Did Amazon Do This Week, um, the newsletter that I write, um, what what Amazon Sidewalk is, which is essentially like very similar because now it leverages tile. So what we're talking about is mesh networks, right? So it's yep. devices talking to one another and then being able to um, utilize a very low broadband uh, in, aid of, in, in order to sort of keep them working while you're not there, if that makes sense. So it can be up to half a mile away, depending on lots of different factors and all that sort of stuff. But it's it's kind of interesting because both of those networks do, do one... Obviously, there are lots of safeguards. It's very safe and all of that sort of thing. There's lots been built in and that sort of stuff. But it would be naive for us to think that there aren't people out there that wish to uh, abuse that and us when we use them and that sort of stuff. We've seen it with every bit of technology that's yeah. out there. And also, when you look at those companies, neither of them are squeaky clean when it comes to privacy infringement and that sort of stuff. They're, they're going through multiple court cases at the moment. So I am... Yeah. Hopeful that it all turns out beautifully, but I am also very cautious. Do I have an air tag? Yes, I do. So there you go. Um, oh, that's cool. Well, you got to know how it works in order to then like beat its death. Oh, Paul, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Like that's 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 why all of this stuff you've talked about with me. Why do you not just do the kind of creative you've done before? Because there's this chance to find new things and play with them, and then decide how you want to have them work for you. Like I, okay. I, I hear what you're saying, and I think I am overly naive about and optimistic about those things, and I have to go like, oh wait, Paul's totally right. This is probably more dangerous than bad, but I, I feel like that's where I want to play with new technology and kind of experience it myself and then decide how one could bring storytelling or the things one wants to do to it rather than, you know, denying that it's existence, denying that yeah. it'll be huge, all that kind of stuff. Unless it's Clubhouse, because I'm just so over that. But anyway, we'll talk about that another time. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Okie doke. Um, you love your film. Um, and, you know, let's talk about streaming and cinema for a bit. Um, cinemas, are they dead? Uh, movies are not dead. Movies have been, I don't know if it's fair to say they've been slowly dying. They, they kept climbing, 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 climbing up. But it's, it's inarguable to say that they've been on the decline since the last decade plus, last 20 years. And gaming has been going up. I think what we're seeing in the pandemic, again, to, to use bad, to use immediate feedback research, tons of people home, obviously streaming a ton more. Um, obviously playing games a ton more. I just spoke with somebody um, very high up at a, at a great gaming company, and the way he, he put it brilliantly to me was, are we going to see the same amount of gaming coming out of the pandemic? No, but it has, in our, it, has, it has definitely shown us that we are on the exact same trend of growing. It just hockey-sticked it for a bit. So we're seeing right. where it's going to go in the future. And I think 
that means that streaming is obviously here to stay. Do I think movie theaters are dead? Absolutely not. I think people will go back to them. Um, I think this is a moment and a challenge. I, I've been on the board at a local more artsy picture house. Um, I've been thinking about these things for years in terms of development on side projects I have in out West in, in like film and television. Everything has shifted to kind of pitching things for TV first. And I think those are the bigger insights. When you see creators not thinking about move, making movies as much and they're making TV shows, that means the trend is here to stay, right? I mean, that 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 is inarguably here to stay. And once you're making movies, uh, sorry, making TV shows for the streamers spending billions and tens and hundreds of billions of dollars on them, even from a financial level, you're not going in to make movies anymore. And the second you're not making movies anymore, then what's going to play in the theater? So I think from a theater owner's perspective, it begets you thinking about how you use space differently. And I think that will be really, really interesting. Um, but I, but yeah, I think movies are on a slow decline um, that's not good for the overall Hollywood industry. But I, look, I think that's actually a good thing. I think Hollywood's been around a very long time and there's a lot of it that's not great. Yeah, no, well, we're seeing that in the news um, in recent days, aren't we, as well? Um, yeah. It's quite interesting, actually. When I think of um, cinemas, when I was young, what sort of stood out to me um, most was the arcade that was there. You know, you used to play uh, games and that sort yeah. of stuff. And then lots of them have taken that away now. And ironically, you could say that probably the ones which will survive will now re-implement those, maybe a VR arcade and that sort of stuff, because people can sort of game on mass and that sort of thing. Yeah, and look, I mean, Chance the Rapper just announced yesterday he's doing a project with AMC Theatres where he's going to put his concert only in those theatres and stream it. And that's going to do really, really well. If you have, if you have um, Travis Scott and Tyler, if you have these people who have massive, massive followings, Dua Lipa, and, I, and they do specific things for... Um, live moments in theater, or you somehow figure out how to take e-gaming to a theater chain, It's you can fill theaters, right? You're going to be able to think about it that way, the way concerts are, are thought about. Um, I just think it's going to take, when people go, oh, movies are dead, I think what they're really saying is the easy way we've traditionally thought about movies and marketing movies and playing a certain movie in a certain theater eight times a day so that we can sell more popcorn that's going to change. And I think that's scary for people. Yeah, I, I think the experience has to change, not necessarily yeah. the film itself, 100%. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, do you think we've given um, day and date for movies a good enough shot? So what I mean by day and date is that a theatrical release, which would have been in cinemas, is released at the same time, say, on Netflix or Amazon and that sort of stuff. A good example would be um, Mulan on Disney+. Plus, um, and that's all, all Wonder Woman. And that's the thing. HBO Max came in and sort of saved the day on that one. But the numbers just aren't there, if that makes sense. Do you, do you think that we still have, you know, have yet to see that heyday? It's, it certainly seems to be going that way. But how do we get people in the sort of distribution realm to sort of think differently about that? Uh, I, I think I had pre-pandemic, I had a, a lot of heart and you know, years ago when my kids were younger, I had a lot of heart for why would you not sell me this movie for $50 on opening night when my wife and I are going to spend twice that amount of money to get a babysitter and go at that whole cliche, right? Yeah. So it always fascinated me that 
not that people didn't want to, because I knew enough people who were targeting these things and there were a million reasons why not to, but all of them felt that they were built upon a scaffolding of the traditional model, not really built upon what the audience wanted. So I think the idea that the audience wants that and the audience wants the option and they might even pay for it more is really, really fascinating. One complication that's come in more recently seems to be with the death knell of the theaters and who are the studios producing the films. So HBO can come in and save the day on a Wonder Woman because it's produced by Warner and HBO is a division of Warner and Warner's deciding to put their own movie out on their own platform. When Netflix is making all of the best movies and Amazon and Apple and HBO and Showtime are all making all of those traditional films that would play in the theater and they're in charge of whether it goes in the theater or whether it goes on their platform, that's when I think it all breaks apart. And or when Amazon decides there's value in the space and they buy all the theater chains and then they do whatever the hell they want in them, then, then I think it's a whole different game. But I think that amalgamation of conglomerates is probably gonna push things away from or toward day and date more than the it's really wanting it or all these things that are already in place. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well. A lot of the changes that are coming down with regards to content and that sort of stuff seem to be built on um, preconceptions of people's reality of their schedules and time, you know, podcasting, for example, and that. Uh The reality of what we are post-pandemic, well, pre-almost post-pandemic, if that makes sense, if anything, they have less time, they're working more, and Mm -hmm. um, their downtime is literally like recuperation and, you know, refocus, if that makes sense. You know, and that's people without kids, let alone, you know, with those. I think when it comes to um, figuring out the sort of future of content, whether it's film, podcasts, and that sort of stuff, comes to what role do you play in their lives now, if that makes sense? Before, yeah, lots of free time and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think increasingly, you know, we didn't have spaces before the pandemic and that sort of stuff. So it's going to be interesting. I think it can't, you know, podcasts played a very specific role for a lot of people um, when you look at the data, and that was commuting. And now that we're all moving to hybrid, do you think that podcasting is going to drop off a cliff or anything? I think podcast is already dangerously saturated, right? I mean, there's so many millions of hours of podcasts that are just going to drop into the void. I think having honest expectations of what you're building and challenging yourself to do something that's more than just a podcast is interesting. Mm-hmm. I see some development now of podcasts with the intent to take them to other platforms. So the content is being used to less expensively test ideas that could then be shown to audiences as documentaries or films or or tv shows or whatever so i think they're being used that way i think other podcasts are being that i listen to a lot are, are ones like adam grants right um who is doing a podcast that feeds into his overall brand and helps sell his books and his thinking and things like that. And look, pandering to you, I think you're using Twitter spaces in a really interesting way to gather people. I bet you're seeing a lot of people come back to one, two, three, four, five episodes of Mouthwash. And then unlike Clubhouse, you have this following of people who understand what you're doing, like it, and you can turn them into a little tribe that you connect with on Twitter, and that can feed into TBD. So I think thinking about podcasts or Twitter spaces or chats through that lens is super interesting to me. Thinking through it the lens of like, I'm driving down to Richmond to pick up my son at college, so I'm going to fire up a Twitter space and talk about random shit for a few hours is a fucking waste of time. You know, I just think that that's that's going to fall off a cliff and just disappear. I think smart people doing interesting things on innovative platforms, I got all the time of the day for that. Mm. 
I think it'd be interesting. I'm not. I, I I sense that there will be a good mix of people just firing up spaces to have a rant about something they've seen. But you, you never know. You know. It, yeah. Again, it comes down to how people want to spend their time and what they've got time to spend. I think. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Um, we're dangerously close to the end. But before I go, I, I wanted to um, talk about Lance if we can, because um, I'm yeah. doing some fun stuff with him at the moment. So Lance Wheeler, for those who don't know, pioneer in experimental content, transmedia to use finger wiggles again. Um, I knew him when I was at MySpace. Yes, I'm that young. Um, and when we worked on Beyond the rave which was incredibly cool at the time very good soundtrack if anyone wants to check it out think multi-screen um choose your own adventure film ar everything was sort of bunged into one and that sort of stuff um you're working with him on some interesting stuff what can you share with us been working with him for more than a decade now the first project we did together was launched at sundance and it was lance's world man lance is pure brilliance um look him up online he runs something called the digital storytelling lab at columbia university it's the first program that brings students from various disciplines journalism filmmaking theater um business together to explore what the future of storytelling is going to be um he's just purely brilliant um one amazing way he's helped me in my life is I'm very practical about where things will go. So I get in the weeds of an artistic project. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen next? And how will it hit audiences? And how will we get a return? And all these things. And Lance loves when, how's it going to work, right? How's it not going to mess up? How are people going to like it? And Lance loves when things break. And he's mm. helped try to teach me to embrace that more. And And that's been so valuable in my life of actually starting to love when things break because it gives you the opportunity to see where they go next. Um, we did a first project at Sundance that used a short film that he shot, invited people around the world, and this is 12 years ago, 10 years ago, um, invited other people to make short films. The short film premiered at Sundance. The film was about a pandemic, kind of a zombie story pandemic. At the same time, we worked with the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, to launch a virtual pandemic across Park City, Utah, which is where Sundance takes place. And we launched the pandemic and people had to use the first iteration of Google phones to walk around Sundance, use the NFC chip, which was the first phone it was in, find objects from the film in the real world, scan those objects, bring it back to our um, lab that we had created, turn on a massive um, Microsoft Surface unit, unlock somebody who had died there. And if everybody banded together over a two week period and unlocked all of the characters, we would reduce the pandemic and we ended up throwing a big party at the end of it all. So that's the kind of crazy shit I've been up to for more than a decade with Lance. And um, the most recent thing we're doing, as I quickly explained, was a project called Where There's Smoke, which is um, I get emotional about it every time. It's just an absolutely beautiful story of um, his father's terminal cancer a couple of years ago. Lance sat down and interviewed his father on audio cassette um, over a series of days and then stitched together those interviews in different ways, exploring the fact that his dad had been a volunteer firefighter and an amateur fire scene photographer his whole life. And there were two fires during Lance's life. Once uh, the van that they were on a vacation in caught fire um, once their house burned um, and basically Lance was trying to uncover the secret of whether or not his father was an arsonist um, and it's an incredible experience that's now been reinvented online using Zoom um, and Miro the whiteboard kind of thing to put people through an experiential journey online to 
answer big questions about memory, loss, and grief all through the art that his father shot, the story that his father did or didn't tell, and trying to explore the idea. My takeaway is trying to explore the idea of can you ever truly figure out the secrets uh, that people have before they're gone. Um, so it's just this beautiful resonant story that's told through all sorts of different digital platforms and devices. But um, to the earlier point, the story always stays clear and the story invites you in to bring in your relationships with those you love, your own secrets, your own passion for art, all these different things. And um, yeah, it's it's been an amazing journey to be on with him, and he just continues to do groundbreaking projects without worrying about them being groundbreaking at all. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter Spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a whole lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.